growing up, um, I had everything I could have ever wanted and needed. From a very early age on, I remember that I had to deal with, you know, any sort of issues on my own and the solutions I had to come up with myself. I grew up watching my mom in active addiction and then all of a sudden my mom had lost her house and we didn't live with her anymore. You know, in eighth grade something happened to me. I got roofied and some rumors went flying and I just took it and soared. Once in a while, you know, like if you had your menstrual cycle or something, you know, my grandmother would give me a pill and I always did feel so much better and the pain went away right away. Those pills lasted me maybe a couple of days. Maybe like the first day I took them as prescribed and then second day, feeling a little bored. One made me feel good, let's see what two does. I was trying everything to get the pain to stop and, and of course as time went on, you know, one pill just wasn't enough. I was so damn sick. Oh my God, the amount I was throwing up. I could not stay awake. I was like, what is this? I enjoyed not feeling so worried about everything all the time. We would be locked in bathrooms in this very well-to-do Wall Street um, steakhouse. You know, I would be cocktail waitressing, selling drugs, and then allowing men to take advantage of me in the bathroom. The day before my sobriety date, I got arrested by seven U.S. Marshals. You know, those seven U.S. Marshals were, my God, like, who I call, or my higher power, who I call God today, like, <laughs> coming to get me. From ZMB Media and Jewish Community Services, this is Hooked, stories of loss, love, and most importantly, hope. I'm your host, Elizabeth Piper, a health educator at Jewish Community Services. All the women you just heard from fortunately found their way into sobriety and recovery and are flourishing in their lives and reconnected to loved ones. After hearing their stories, I wanted to sit down with experts in the addiction world to learn more about what they've seen in their encounters with women and an opioid addiction. You'll hear from Beacon Health Options' very own Lisa Kugler, Doctor of Psychology and Vice President for Clinical Strategy, and Jay Hensley, board-certified registered nurse. In addition, you'll hear from licensed certified social workers Karen Reese and Rachel Marcus, who work with addicts in recovery. I think it's a really important topic and not given enough attention because yeah. um, women are biologically different and it doesn't mean that addiction is not addiction and no matter what the gender but nonetheless I mean it, it probably does require some some specific thoughts about what makes more sense in terms of treatment and what women's experiences have been because they are a lot of times very different than the male experience on earth. For the people in recovery um, do you see any differences between the escape that a woman is trying to find versus the things that um, a man might be trying to find. So is like there different insecurities, is there different traumas they've experienced in their childhood that you see come up in the recovery process? Because it's not just, okay, to get sober, right? It's to treat these things that, these feelings that I've had in these situations that I've endured in my life. I think at the core, men and women experience some of the same feel, most of the same feelings, like not being good enough, something's wrong with me, and just not feeling a part of, even when you're surrounded by people. Um, but certainly, I do think, as a general rule, there's different experiences that women go through versus men in life, just because of the way society is structured. So, 
I mean, women have this pressure, of course, with outside appearance. Not that men don't, but women, obviously, it's often tied into weight and, you know, skin and what you're wearing and all these different things. And I think that certainly plays into somebody's already already has like a predisposition for, you know, not feeling good enough and having all these insecurities. And you kind of add in this whole society expectation that you're supposed to look perfect and be perfect then. That certainly doesn't make it easy to cope with. And then, of course, the layer of trauma that you kind of, you know, underneath all of that, women experience often, not across the board, but often different types of trauma than men. A lot of women have sexual trauma. I mean, our society is just starting to talk about that more. Men do too. And it's equally often just as damaging and painful and shameful and, you know, hard to treat because it's just such a secret. Because we're not just treating addiction, right? We're treating the underlying trauma. We're treating the, all the mental health effects of people that go through, you know, terrible things. So, yes, the nature of the trauma that females experience often is, you know, it's pervasive and it's really, really, you know, devastating. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think that they are more vulnerable to that. Just because you're obviously in an altered state and putting yourself in risky situations and women tend to be vulnerable to that experience, unfortunately, as like you said, Rachel, society's starting to talk about it. So they, they experience, you know, in their active addiction, it seems like a higher level of trauma during it. And I think the craving level that women have is much greater than the craving level men have. So it's it's a combination of the metabolic rate, the the, the hormone fluctuations, and the fact that women are seeking that high not for risk-taking, which is what men seeks it for, but women seek it more for the emotional calming down of their life. As we heard from those in recovery at the beginning, women are facing many obstacles when it comes to achieving sobriety. Sexual trauma, more intense cravings, and adverse childhood experiences or more commonly referred to as ACEs. One of the contributing factors is actually adverse childhood events, ACEs. Those individuals that have more adverse childhood events are more likely to become addicted to chemicals. They're also more likely to have mental health concerns or behavioral health concerns as they get older. I believe that it's three or more ACEs uh, increase the likelihood of having behavioral health concerns later on in life. It comes back to that nature-nurture kind of issue, which comes first. But when an individual is growing up with some hereditary predispositions to developing a chemical dependency, and then they're in a situation where there is food instability, housing instability, potential violence, criminal activity to get the monies necessary for the substances and potential sexual abuse, etc. All of that chaos adds to the adverse childhood events, which then perpetuates the increased likelihood of behavioral health and mental health symptomology later on. What I've noticed is that this opioid epidemic, regardless of what place you have in society and what culture you come from, is affecting everyone. So those teenage girls who wind up with a knee injury because they're playing soccer wind up getting put on an opioid and they find it difficult to come off the opioid. Okay, Mm -hmm. For whatever the reason is, they choose to continue 
by using street drugs right. versus adolescent females who have access to illicit substances at an early age because their brother or somebody in their family is associated or connected to somebody. Right. You know, and it's not hard to figure out where the open drug markets are in the city if you were to drive through every neighborhood. It's pretty noticeable in most big cities that there are certain corners where drugs are sold. I think the rise of, you know, painkiller prescription mm -hmm. has also really contributed. Like our society is just, I mean, it's running rampant, the amount of <laughs> prescribed drugs. And so it sets women up mm -hmm. who may not have already have been exposed to opiates. Like, oh, now I'm, now I'm prescribed Percocet from my doctor, but I'm starting to take more than I should. And I'm realizing that, oh, shit, I have a problem. Right. And so the next step, unfortunately, is heroin. And heroin is much more widely available now than maybe it was in the past. I don't actually know if that's true, but it certainly seems like it. It seems like it's available at every corner in every city of the entire, you know, probably world, but definitely the United States. And so I think that women just have have now more access and more uh, exposure to opiates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it's sort of like a recipe for disaster. And it's also probably easier for women to manipulate doctors, mm -hmm. you know, a, a young or even an older woman um, kind of saying, hey, I'm having really bad back pain, blah, 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 nothing else is working. A doctor unfortunately, that isn't really educated and doesn't really understand addiction might say, oh, well, this person would never be a drug addict. Yeah, so right. they just really might need the, the meds. But, you know, clearly addicts come in all shapes and sizes. So right. Some of the areas that you may not think about, for example, dentistry was one of the areas that in, when individuals uh, get addicted to opiates, they oftentimes go to their dentist and try and get additional opioids through there. Right. Um, they also will intentionally harm animals or their pets and take them into the vet and get opiates that way as well. So there is, you know, a, a, an increasing awareness for all of the prescribers of opiates around what to look for and appropriate prescribing practices around those substances because the need for that substance becomes so overwhelming that the individuals do things that they would never, ever, ever do if they were not seeking that substance and it wasn't so strong, which then leads to the shame, um, increasing reluctance to try and get treatment and oftentimes you know, some suicidal ideation or unintentional overdoses. And what is it about opioids specifically, do you think, um, compared to something like, you know, let's say someone using alcohol or, um, you know, more stimulants um, or whatnot. What is it about opioids that uh, the addiction seems so intense and then the recovery process seems very challenging for most people? I think in many ways, I mean, opioids do release certain neurotransmitters in the brain that make you feel good almost instantly. Mm -hmm. And it is a very, very euphoric feeling for many people. Um, I think that you know anybody can really become addicted to any drug. It's how your body reacts to it. When someone has that kind of euphoric response to an opioid, what happens over time is as a woman or anyone actually continually takes the opioid, that floods their, their neurotransmitter system. Right. So their body actually forgets how to make it it stops making them. Mm. So part of the withdrawal is actually the individual 
their body not knowing how to make the neurotransmitters to help them feel even normal. What was the difference between using opiates versus other psychoactive substances? Like what is, for someone who has never tried opiates, for example, how would you explain the difference? It's so hard to explain. All substances made me feel better, quote unquote better, but I think opiates were the one that took it all away. It being like the pain, the psychological sort of angst, the anxiety, the racing thoughts, like opiates, heroin, painkillers, Oxycontin, whatever it was, were, were the one class of medication or class of drug that um, it just quieted it all. That was the experience of it. Um, now, as I used more and more, it became more like physically dependent, right? right? So, and all the effects of that, you know, the nodding out that you see people doing and um, just the slowing down of the nervous system and all those sorts of effects too. But the physical dependency and then going through, as soon as I stopped doing it, you know, eight, 12 hours later, starting to feel that withdrawal. I would just want to crawl out of my skin. It's like having a really, really bad flu, like where you're kind of feverish because you're achy and you're just hot and cold, sweaty, and your body's just sort of like physically craving this substance. If you can just imagine like the, you know, neurotransmitters or the whatever chemicals sort of just being depleted all of a sudden because you rush in and give them all that, you know, the euphoric feelings and then take it away it's like your body's like you know screaming at you internally so quickly does become just avoiding that feeling uh-huh <laughs> and, and if by any means necessary yes so it's it's a heavy duty opiates are heavy duty drugs What does treatment look like for the you know, individual? And you're saying stay connected to treatment. What is so powerful about treatment? And then yes, is it something that is a lifelong journey? And then I love that you mentioned for their family as well, because you know we say addiction's a family disease, and I know that from a personal experience. So what does treatment look like for the family as well as for the individual? Well, there, there are a lot of programs in Maryland. There's a pregnant women and children program. There's a Senate bill that um, allows for families um, to actually go into treatment facilities, uh, even if they're not the woman who gave birth to the child because they want the family to be treated. Um, and it's, it's important to note that not only uh, can these women go into a long-term treatment facility in our state, but they can take their children and be reunified with their children um, while engaged in treatment. And then their children are in treatment as well as receiving daycare, schooling, and go to all their medical appointments. Everything is sort of a one-stop shop if you're at a residential treatment facility where they're there to support you to, to get better. Do you think there's certain barriers that prevent women from getting into treatment that you've seen? I don't necessarily see it unless it is a mother. A mother, I think, is gonna, is gonna try to hold off coming to treatment as long as possible because it is, you are supposed to be a mother and you're supposed to protect your child. Right. Um, but then you also see the, the mothers who, they leave them completely, too. Yeah. 
Um, and then the shame and the guilt that surrounds the fact that they did that can actually make accessing treatment really difficult too because they feel so horrible that, that's, that their addiction has led them literally to abandon the one thing that matters the most to them. And then they're, it's very hard for them to then deal with the emotions and process that, that it's easier to use than to face that. So in your professional opinions, um, what do you think are some of the crucial steps to sort of start walking in the right direction with the opioid epidemic and providing help to women specifically? I think that Maryland has really done a great job. And quite honestly, some of the data is supportive of that. Uh, the opioid deaths have been, the heroin related opioid deaths have been coming down pretty significantly over the last year. And that has really been where a lot of the emphasis has been at this point in time. Increasing knowledge around medication-assisted treatment, uh, doing things like the prescription drug monitoring program, um, doing enhanced trainings for prescribers, whether it's MDs, whether it's continuing education units for um, advanced practice uh, you know, nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, uh, veterinarian, dentistry, etc. So I think that there is a lot of work that's being done to increase both the knowledge on the prescriber's end and to decrease some of the stigma associated with heroin and making certain that individuals know some of the risks associated with prescription opioid medications. I'm first of all just so grateful that you're bringing to light this topic and having these discussions and talking with women in recovery because I think that that's the first part is raising awareness around some of the particular struggles, especially that women have. The other part is just hopefully reminding the listeners and everyone that this is a lifelong process as well. The treatment does not end after the residential stay or after you know they've completed X number of sessions, that this is an ongoing, life-changing process, and people don't just need support during the first 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. This is ongoing. It's, it's life-changing. It's, it's a change in the way they see themselves, a, way in, a change in the way they cope with struggles, a way to sometimes deal with chronic pain a way to parent, a way to be a mom and what does that mean, to be a daughter and what does that mean. And it's challenging for them to begin looking and unpeeling some of those layers, dealing with the pain, dealing with the shame, dealing with the guilt. But then it's so exciting the other side of what can they become afterwards? What does that butterfly look like? And how do you go from being, quote unquote, a patient to a contributing, loving member of society that's giving back, that is parenting, that is passing on that uh, inspiration and hope to others? I love the way Dr. Kugler articulated the hope that exists on the other side of opioid addiction. She said, what can women in addiction become? What does that butterfly look like? Which poses my question. How can we best support women who have become statistics in the opioid crisis? 
How can we meet them with empathy, understanding, and resources, rather than judgment and shame? We hope that by listening to these stories, you've found comfort in knowing that this conversation is being brought to light. A common phrase used in recovery meetings is, we're only as sick as our secrets. It has been our vision for Hooked to begin sharing the secrets that addicts often carry. The shame, the abuse, the isolation that accompanies the disease of addiction. It is in bringing light to these dark truths that we find healing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We invite you to listen to the other episodes in the series. If you or a loved one are suffering from addiction, you're not alone. There are resources that can help. Visit our website, ifiknew.org. Click on the Get Help tab for listings of local Baltimore resources, as well as leading national ones. These podcasts are brought to you by Jewish Community Services in Baltimore, an agency of the Associated and the Jewish Women's Giving Fund. We are grateful for their support, as well as the generosity of other funders who make JCS prevention education programming possible.